Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favourite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi and welcome to The Culture, a weekly show from Schwartz Media where we take a deep dive into the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, entertainment and Kanye West. He's done it. Somehow, after multiple delays, one of the most fascinating, chaotic and controversial rollouts in recent history, Kanye West has managed to release the biggest album of the year so far. And... I don't think anyone saw this coming. Kanye's albums have always done pretty well, sure, but right now, in 2021, safe to say that he's far from the peak of his powers, artistically and culturally. But still, his 10th studio album, Donda, named after his late mother, went to number one and has already sold better in its first week than huge albums like pop superstar Olivia Rodrigo's debut. But of course, when we're talking about Ye, it's never just about the sales figures or even just the music. For nearly two decades now, he has been an unstoppable cultural force influencing everything from music to art to fashion to politics. And there's not that many artists who are both as loved and hated as Kanye. So to help explain why he's so influential and so divisive, we're doing something a little bit different on today's episode. First up, I'll be speaking to Santilla Chingaype about who Kanye is, where he comes from, why so many people fell in love with his music, and why it's so hard to be a fan of Ye right now. Then in the second half of the episode, I'll be joined by the Saturday Papers music critic Shard D'Souza for a more in-depth discussion about Donda the album and where Kanye sits musically. First, though, let's kick things off with Santilla. Santi... Thank you so much for joining me on The Culture. Very happy to be back, Oz. And can I say, I'm going to pull a bit of a Kanye here. Yeah. But does this make me, given that this is the second time I'm coming on to The Culture, the greatest culture guest of all time? I mean, I've thought that (laughs) from the second you were on the first episode. No shade to my other guests. I love and respect each of you. Look, I think to properly understand the bigger question of why so many people still get so excited about a new Kanye project, despite all the controversy, and why there's so much conflict over him as an artist and a cultural figure. I think it's important to properly understand him and his career trajectory. Mm. I think there's actually a lot of clues from his past that can help kind of unlock a lot of what confuses people about Kanye today. Yeah. Everyone has a slightly different entry point to Ye, so I'd love to know when you first started listening to him and how he first entered your life. It's so funny because you could do PhDs on Kanye because that's just how influential he's been to music and the culture, really. I said toast, motherfucker. My first entry to Kanye, college dropout. I was a teenager... I played that CD, like, to death. I mean, I can still quote it bar for bar, skit for skit. The 
he, you know, it came at a time for me where I'd grown up listening to all kinds of black music and hip-hop was part of that. And a lot of the hip-hop that I was listening to was informed by my older cousins and mm. they were listening to, to a lot of, like, gangster mm. rap. And as much as I loved it, it just I just never could really relate to sort of some of the violence and, you know, the drugs and all that sort of stuff. And then there was also sort of the more um, conscious rap, I guess. So you had mm. people like Talib Kweli and Mos Def. That was cool too, but, you know, you don't want to listen to, to that sort of music on a Saturday night, do you know what I mean? Like totally. you sort of want something that is a little bit lighter but also speaks to your experience. And when College Dropout came out, you know, I think I was probably about 14, 15, 16, I think that those sort of mid-teen years. Mm. And I was questioning my life um, in the sense that I was brought up on respectability politics and this idea that education was the thing that was going to be my way out of um, my circumstances. My parents sort of instilled this in my brother and I, and it was just this sense that that was the only way and that was the way that you could outrun racism. Mm. And so listening to Kanye rapping about racism and rapping about the fact that, you know, education wasn't necessarily the way out, you know, that you could probably be making more money as a stripper than if you actually had a college degree. Told them I finished school and I started my own business. They say, oh, you graduated. No, I decided I was finished chasing your dreams and what you got planned. Now I spit it so hot, you got canned. You know, those sorts of things were making me question what I thought the lie I'd been sold by my parents was about my life. Like, was there a guarantee that I could outrun racism? And he was rapping about those sorts of things. I don't know if you remember the track with J.I.V. and Jay-Z where he's like, Racism still alive. they just be concealing it. And I remember hearing that and going, you know, it is so true, this idea that you know, particularly when you come from a working class background and you've got the upward mobility and you sort of land in the middle class and you somehow think that you've left all of that stuff behind and then all of a sudden you're in the supermarket and someone's mm -hmm. following you or, you know, you're going for a run and someone yells at the N-word and you sort of think, gosh, what's going on? This wasn't supposed to happen. And so he was talking about those things and it felt very personal to me. And that was just how I jumped on the Kanye train, you know. And he was also talking about not just racism, but, you know, gun violence in Chicago. Mm. He was talking about microaggressions before mm. there were microaggressions. I mean, you know, a line that I quote all the time from him is... Even if you're in a Benz, you're still a nigger. Even if you're in a Benz, you're still an N-word mm. in a coupe. We're sold this illusion that, you know, when you get to a certain level of success you might not necessarily have to be able to experience some of the forms of racism that, um, you know, we're sort of used to being subjected to and that it's still confidence never-ending. And that line for me is still one of those reminders that it's still ongoing. And so for me, he really spoke to my life, my existence, um, in a way that I hadn't heard a rapper at that point, apart from Lauren Hill, sort of hmm. articulate what it was like to be young, black in the world and wake up and realise that you'd been sold a dud dream. I think what you've described there perfectly is that appeal of that early phase of Kanye where his music lyrically was very powerful and, and very reflective and sharp 
sharp stinging critique of American society from someone who'd grown up on the south side of Chicago and experienced racism throughout his life, but also someone who had experienced racism throughout his career as well and feeling like he, you know, a lot of the stories he tells, the the, the lyrics you quoted, the lyric on Never Let Me Down, they made me show ID to get inside a Sam's Club. Mm. This constant sense of being an outsider in a system that doesn't respect him or want him, that has been mirrored throughout, I think, his career. And it's an insight into how he feels as a black man in America and as a as a black man who wants to change the way music works, you, you referenced some of those. It's so funny saying the word conscious hip hop. That was such like a early it was a, 2000s it was a thing. vibe. It was, yeah, yeah, it was, um, it? and it feels so different now. But yeah, Talib Kweli and um, Mostef out of out of New York. But you know, we had uh, rappers like Common as well yeah. from from Chicago yeah, yeah. and Lupe Fiasco, who Kanye featured on his next album, Late mm. Registration. That was a whole sort of moment there. This this kind of hip hop that was a rejection of gangster in a way. But it was also building on the legacy of black music, right? Mm, so black mm. music, I mean, hip hop, you know, for people that aren't aware of the history, you know, came out of the Bronx in the 70s, very much a rejection of what was going on politically, economically, young working class black kids, essentially having, creating a space for themselves to talk about the things that they couldn't talk about elsewhere. Mm. And again, that history of sort of using music to talk about your experience is something that is very much at the heart of black music, because it has its roots in slavery and colonialism. You know, during those times, a lot of colonists and slave owners did not allow slaves to be literate, to Mm. learn to Mm. read or write. So what slaves did is that they created a language of their own, that they were able to communicate how they were feeling, that their masters wouldn't be able to hear, um, couldn't eavesdrop, couldn't put them in any danger, could communicate their lived experience. And the similar things happened, you know, in communities that were also colonised. So you've got this culture of using music to talk about your struggles, to talk about ways of uplifting you, which is why you have spirituals and gospel. And a lot of that patina is very much in Kanye's music. Asking us questions, harassing, arrest us, saying we eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast, huh? Y'all eat pieces of shit? What's the basis? We ain't going nowhere again. So you've got this history of this culture that's rooted in resistance and struggle, but also social justice. Because, yes, there was gangster rap, but then you've got, you know, one of the greatest rappers of all time, Tupac. Mm. And he was as hardcore as they came, but he was also very much about social justice mm. and, you know, ensuring that uh, we dismantled racism and... You know, hip hop has always had that at its core. And that was what Kanye was building on when he came out. But like you said, he was from Chicago. You know, hip hop was generally an East Coast thing, also part of the West Coast in the US. So rappers from Chicago weren't a common thing. And he was also very different. You know, he wasn't dressing like other rappers. Mm. He was very preppy with these sort of um, polo shirts and bright colours. And he was into fashion and art. You know, I remember once reading a magazine and he was in his um, house and he had like these Jeff Coons in his... And I was just like, who is this dude? Like he, he was just the opposite of what I sort of thought a rapper was meant to be. So he was definitely, when he came out, he definitely was not just building on that history and legacy, but also putting his own spin on it and sort of redefining what it meant to be black, which really spoke to me because up until that point, it felt like there were only certain ways that you could express yourself as a black person. 
um, that were quote unquote acceptable. Kanye was sort of uh, challenging all of that. You know, he was like, you could be a nerd, man. You could be interested in a whole wide range of things and that that was okay. And then because he added that sort of bombastic kind of hip hop braggadocious thing to it, it made it feel like you could actually be pretty arrogant about it. You could be Mm. arrogant about your nerdiness, you know, Mm. and that was that was really cool because it was very refreshing. And and that was what made it so easy to ride with Kanye. And for me, those first three albums, College Dropout, Late Registration and Graduation, just encapsulated not just him as someone that was thinking about the politics, expressing them in the music, celebrating black culture, but also just a genius producer. Mm. I mean, the samples in those records are probably some of the best I've heard in hip hop. One thing that often gets missed in the conversation around Kanye, and I think it's quite important to understanding why he feels like he's always been an outsider, even though he is so successful, so lauded, so wealthy now. He was producing for a long time before he started releasing his own records. And he talks very openly about how no one wanted to let him rap. Uh, there's stories about, we know, he produced a lot of tracks on Jay-Z's The Black Album, which is an amazing record. And The Blueprint as well. And The Blueprint. One of the joys for me in the music business is watching a new artist develop into their own. I mean, that shit just bring me joy, like to see artists come from nothing and then, you know, they known he has a name. That's Kanye West. That's Kanye West. He signed an autograph. He was talking to Jay-Z and the folks at Rockefeller Records saying, hey, I want to be a rapper. And they mm. were basically saying, no, you're a good producer. Mm. You keep producing tracks. You just, you can't rap. You're not good at it. Mm. He wasn't someone who was seen as having a particularly, you know, eloquent flow. He wasn't mm. firing tight rhymes like Jay-Z was at the time. His metaphors and the sorts of themes and the references he, were, he was making were very funny and very sharp. But I don't think he's ever really been considered one of, like, the greatest rappers of all time. And it does seem like that that is something that has frustrated him and made Prop- him feel a bit. Yeah, he talks about that on College Dropout, hey. Like, he, he talks about how he really had to fight to be taken seriously as as a rapper. Mm. Um, and there's that hilarious Dave Chappelle um, story that hmm. he told in one of the US talk shows about when Kanye walks into the studio and everyone's like, who's this guy? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? It was the day that Jay-Z's Black Album came out. And it was me and, and Common and Quali and Kanye, this guy that nobody knew. And, you know, the record starts and Jay-Z says on one record, Kanye, he's a genius. You did it again. And Kanye stood up. First time he spoke all day, he goes, stop the record. <laughs> <laughs> and rewind that. <laughs> When I was listening to Donda, by the way, you're the only person that could make me listen to that album because <laughs> I wasn't planning on listening to it. And he had a couple of good bars, but some of the best bars on that album are from the people that guessed on on mm. on it, especially Jay Electronica, who I really love. And it was it was one of those things where I sort of thought, yeah, he's a great producer. But what Kanye does very, very well is that he is a performance artist, Mm. you know, and this is what we're really grappling with. You know, when we talk about 
Kanye the artist versus Kanye the person and how they're all intertwined and how these politics collide and how we try to make sense of it. I think it is because what he's very good at is that he's very good at making a spectacle of something. And that transformation is what we are very familiar with, but it's also what we struggle to reconcile. When the Kanye that we're talking about in those early years doesn't mirror the Kanye that we're sort of seeing and engaging with today. I think it's interesting when people talk about this transformation because I think while it seems like he shifted his political views or his general approach, I don't think he sees it that way. And there's a couple of different examples that I've been thinking about a lot lately. They're from earlier on in Kanye's career and they're things that were seen as even more controversial at the time than I think some of the more recent stuff for very different reasons. The first one is really the first time he shot to international prominence. In 2004, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and the devastation it caused on New Orleans, Kanye took part in this televised fundraising event alongside Mike Myers and went off script to say that George Bush, then the president of the United States, doesn't care about black people. I hate the way they portray us in the media If you see a black family, it says they're looting. See a white family, it says they're looking for food. And you know, it's been five days. George Bush doesn't care about black people. And he was eviscerated for that. 2004 was a very different time to now in terms of who dominated the media, the discussion around, you know, George Bush. Kanye, I think was stunned and has been very open about not expecting that kind of backlash. And you hear him talk now about how he he says, quote, I was cancelled before they had cancel culture. But we don't make Kobe's legacy be about one torn ligament, and my legacy ain't about, oh, he got mid-12. That just come with the level of sport I'm playing at. What you talking about? People's trying to sun me left and right, strategize. I've been cancelled. I've been cancelled before they had cancel culture. To us... Kanye taking shots at George Bush for being a racist and then dealing with a backlash to it is very different to Kanye supporting Trump and being criticised for it. But to his mind, I think he thinks of them in the same way, that I just say things about politics and everyone's going to get mad at me no matter what I say or do because they got mad at me at George Bush. They got mad at me when I told Taylor Swift that Beyonce should have won, mm. you know, the the um, MTV VMA award. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. Like I said, I, I, I see Kanye as a performance artist and I think that he is someone that's very good at getting people interested in him and interested in what he's selling. And... This is not to dismiss the fact that, you know, as a black man, not just in America but in the world, he is subjected to discrimination, yes. But has that evolved since he first started, as in in terms of how that manifests in its music? Because he was using his music to articulate those things Mm. quite well, Mm. which is why it resonated, uh, to me anyway. But then a shift happened and Kanye started to become a bigger and bigger figure in the world. And I think he's been trying to hold on to that prominence in the culture. And and every time I feel like he's trying to outdo the spectacle. Yeah, there's the era from which Kanye kind of first emerges, he does those three records. Mm. Uh, and they're all pretty coherent. It's, it's, you know, a sense of 
his life, his experiences, what he feels passionately about. The music is all very samples uh, heavy and it's a good combination of like that conscious hip hop and party bangers basically. Mm. And then in 2007, something extremely, extremely significant happens. His mother, Donda West, passes away uh, and she passes away from complications relating to plastic surgery that Kanye is very open and candid about how that has given him a very complicated relationship to beauty and Hollywood and and all these kinds of things. And his personal behaviour and his music changed quite significantly from that moment. A lot of people pinpoint Donda's passing away as being this kind of inflection point for Kanye. What what do you think about that? I just think it's another conspiracy theory that Kanye stands like to used to justify his behaviour, I think. Um, Tell me more about not, that. Not to invalidate the fact that obviously losing a parent is a very significant and life-changing moment. I don't want to take that away from him. But what I can also say is that, you know, most people lose their parents um, in their lifetime, but they don't become assholes. Hmm. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. You can but... say asshole on this podcast. <laughs> you can swear on this podcast. Um, but... I, I just I just sort of think it's another it's another line that we use to explain away the behavior of men behaving badly. Um, his mother died. Yes, it was tragic. But, you know, I hopped off the Kanye train when 808s came out. Which is the album following yeah, his mother's death. I just, death. Uh, there was a lot that I didn't really, you know. And is that because, can I ask you, is that because you found the music less impactful for you or the behaviour was getting too erratic or maybe a it was combination? Just, it was, it, to, to be honest, at that point it was the music. Right. The music just felt, I, I, I didn't really get it. There was a lot of auto-tune. This was around that time and there was better stuff coming out. Hmm. Um, I think J. Cole had just hit the scene and hmm. I'm a very big J. Cole fan. Hmm. Um, and my own interests were, were evolving. And for me, you know, hip-hop really is very much about... Um, the social justice, the the facts that we live in a capitalist society and sometimes we can fall under the illusion, particularly, you know, those of us who are black, who are given access to certain spaces, who are given opportunities, we can have this illusion that because we have reached that pinnacle of success, that therefore things are fair and equitable for everyone else, when the reality of it is is that we might make up a small section of society and a lot of people are still living in mm. that inequity. Mm. And it's about remembering that our responsibility is to continually work to address and to dismantle those systems of oppression. So for me, hip-hop will always, that is what I anchor it with and that's what I, that's why I always keep going back to it. But yeah, that was, that was when I got off the Kanye train. So I actually really like 808s. I think it was a pretty radical album for the time in a lot of ways. And I think it's more influential than it gets credit for. I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that there would be no Drake if not for that album. Openly talking about love and loss in that way was was groundbreaking for a rap album and it's kind of become a Drake mainstay. Uh, and, and sonically, Drake referenced the sound very heavily on, on his breakthrough mixtape, So Far Gone. He even rapped over the beat from Say You Will. But despite, I think, its actual influence, I agree that the album doesn't really get talked about much. And I think part of the reason why it does get forgotten about is because of what happens immediately afterwards. And the year after it's released, in 2009, Kanye makes his dramatic intervention at the VMA Awards, 
where he bum rushes the stage while Taylor Swift is accepting her award and says, Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Maybe this is controversial. I mean, the thing is, he was right. Like, there's no way that Beyonce should not have won that award. But that is different to the question of should he have, like, monstered a, I think, teenage Taylor Swift at the time. Probably not. In fact, definitely not. Obama called him a jackass after that happened. It's so hard to consider now because it feels like it was a lifetime ago. It was 12 years ago, which is not that long ago. But it was a huge moment in pop culture discourse. It was a huge, huge reckoning point. It was sort of pitted as this clash of like black culture versus white culture. I think Beyonce was very distressed to have been roped into what was Kanye acting out. He'd been drinking two bottles of Hennessy before that night. It ended up being this enormous debating point that emerged from him just being drunk and angry. He then holds himself up in Hawaii, records an album that comes out called My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. To me, that is the absolute apex of Kanye. That is a synthesis of everything he's been doing previously. That's a record that is thematically about what it means to be black in America, what America means now, what relationships and work and family and love, what that all means in that context. And musically, it's just astounding. To me, it seems like everything we've been grappling with Kanye since then is this sense of how, how did a man who made music like that, that was so sharp and poignant and political and interesting, how did he stray from that path? And we are always wanting him to come back. I feel like every time there's a Kanye release, it's like, is this going to be the next My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy? Can he reach those dizzying highs again? And there's that sense of expectation every time. And I don't think we'll ever hit it because I think Kanye post that era, is a different person. But, is- see, but that's it. You've just answered the question. He's changed. And those of us that have come to Kanye's music need to be able to understand and accept that and not pine for this version of Kanye that is so far removed from um, who he is today. You know, when, when Kanye started out, and he outlines this in College Dropout, he was like any ambitious young person, struggling, you know, he talks about driving a U-Haul van and not having a bed in his first place, all this sort of stuff, and then all of a sudden he starts making the money. And he's talking about that and he's talking about that in a way that is relatable, you know, relatable and and accessible. And then he becomes this bigger popular culture figure that starts to rake in more money, gains even bigger mainstream attention. Mm. You know, there was a time when it was mostly black people that listened to Kanye. Mm. Then all of a sudden it became everybody was listening to Kanye. Mm. And that's fine. You know, you make music, you make Sorry music. Sorry for ruining it. For no, no, it's not, it's not ruining it. It's just how it is. That's just the nature of it. But, you know, as that was happening, he was becoming wealthier and wealthier. I mean, Kanye now is a billionaire. He meets Kim Kardashian, another performance artist, and 
they have perfected the art of spectacle, of mm. creating things that keep them talked about in the media, using those marketing devices to bring attention to the thing that they're trying to sell us. In Kanye's case, it's been music and fashion. In Kim, it's been all these other things that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> um, and ultimately, to me, that's what it comes down to. It's no longer about the politics of the music because it hasn't been that for a very long time. There's a lot that Kanye raps about that you and I can't even relate to. I mean, mm. he was rapping about a $60 million home and mm. Architecture Digest, like, okay, very relatable content. But that version of Kanye no longer exists. And I think the bigger questions that we should be asking ourselves is why do we still find it acceptable to explain the behaviour of men who behave badly? And this is why a lot of this fits within the patriarchal system that we operate under, mm. you know, because you've got someone like Kanye who consistently has said things that not just endanger the lives of people of colour and women. Mm. The thing for me that was like, I was like, this, this brother's lost man, was when he tweeted the slavery was a choice. Mm. And as someone that works with the historical archive, I can tell you there's nothing in the archive <laughs> that is false. Yeah. That really broke me because I sort of thought I can understand a gimmick for marketing purposes, but this is very dangerous. It's mm. dangerous in the sense that you're okay because you get to make this mm. money. You get to stand on this platform and say, I just have an opinion and it's fine. But for everyone else, it still has to live with the consequences mm. of racism. This isn't solved, you know. This it feels like a betrayal, right? Like this is the person who absolutely. diagnosed, like you said, relatable microaggressions of what it meant to be a black person just, you know, every single day. You fast forward 15 years and he's saying, I've got mine and I can now make these opinions. But, yeah, he's not thinking through the consequences. For and that's else. it. And that's, and that's what I just don't have time for anymore in terms of what Kanye says and what he does because – we know that these inequities continue to exist and we know that the only person that's benefiting out of this situation is Kanye. Mm. You know, this stuff that he's doing, I don't see how that's advancing um, the rights of black people. If anything, I know, I know that there's a school of black radical thought that essentially argues that part of, um, you know, emancipation is being able to in some way uh, build your own wealth and fortune and that sort of thing. And, and, and in some ways... Kanye's kind of done that, but has he been able to articulate that in the way that fits that sort of academic context? Absolutely not. And so there's one way that you could argue that, and I think Beyonce and Jay-Z have also tried to sort mm. of use that sense of, you know, building generational wealth, et cetera, et cetera, as a form of liberation, as a mm. form of black liberation. When ultimately they're, they're, they're all capitalists, really, mm. um, and they have managed to find a way of aligning the trauma that uh, black people experience with profit. And this is a very uncomfortable thing for us to talk about because as people of colour, I don't think it's something that we have yet quite found the language to openly talk about what happens when you're no longer about the struggle and you're just about yourself. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about the rollout of the new album, Donda. You've talked about Kanye as a spectacle and a performance artist. I feel like nowhere has that been more obvious than over the past few weeks. Honestly, he's got this thing, is it coming out? When is it coming out? You know, everyone's sitting on the internet refreshing their page. Like, it, it, madness, madness. Because, again, even when you listen to it, you're going, this is not dark, twisted fantasy, not even mm. close to what that is. Mm. And yet 
In the lead up to that, what does he do? He stages these listening parties in these stadiums. We're we're in the in the COVID time, where touring is, um, you know unlikely in the way that it used to be for a number of years. And someone like Kanye and his ego would probably want to be selling out mm. mega stadiums. Mm. So he wouldn't be wanting to sell a 10,000 <laughs> packed arenas. Um, and so a listening party that he's charging people to come to, he's making money. I, I was reading something that in the, the first two listening parties that he held, he made something like $7 million out of yeah, it. Yeah, right. So yeah, so he's got this song that I sort of grew a liking to on Donda, um, Jesus Lord. It's got Jay Electronica on it. And, you know, I liked it because, again, it had that patina of gospel and it it, it, it was very nostalgic and it reminded me of that of, of, of that Kanye that I fell in mm. love with. But then he does this thing at the end where he brings in uh, a soundbite of uh, a man whose father is incarcerated and Kanye took this man's case to the White House to get him released. I mean, we get the sense that the man hasn't been released because the, the struggle is still continuing and he's using this platform. And for me, that's where the disconnect for mm. Kanye begins because mm. I just sort of thought here he is aligning himself with something and I wonder if the circumstances for that man and his family will change as a consequence of being on this album. It probably will bring more attention to the case because of the media stuff. But I also thought, gosh, is this where Kanye's got to now, where he has to bring people in on his album to profit off of their pain? Mm. I wondered if he genuinely believed in the liberation and, 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 and this man being freed, why that wasn't done outside of this album? Why did it have to be in something that he was making money off of? I just I, I find that contradiction to be quite startling and very worrying. But also, to me, it's a continuation of what we've been seeing of yeah. Kanye, yeah. seeing of even, the, you know, Kim Kardashian embodies that. I mean, she's someone who's profited off the proximity of blackness yeah. and her sisters as well. Yeah. Um, and because someone like Kanye, rappers, athletes, have generally represented this sense of hyper-masculinity, you can't help but think, what good is it doing in the world? What what keeps fascinating me about Kanye is that despite all of the controversy going back more than 15 years now, he still manages to capture so many people's fascination. His album is breaking records. He seems basically uncancellable. Why do you think that is? This is, again, coming back to how we culturally find ways of explaining the behaviour of men behaving badly even when the, the consequences are very dire. And in Kanye's case, particularly when it comes to that sort of idea that he might be some sort of genius, it'd be remiss to not even talk about the conversation around his mental health because there's some Kanye fans that explain his behaviour through his mental health diagnosis. And I find a lot of that to be quite infantilising in many ways because I sort of think that he has agency. So to sort of also reduce it to that again is speaks to the patriarchal system that that still underpins our societies this idea that a man who can create great art is also deeply flawed and that sometimes you cannot separate the art from the artist and I find that very interesting when it comes to the context of men hmm. because I don't think women would get as many passes and chances as Kanye does, you know. Um, and 
it's so funny because I always use, whenever I have these sorts of conversations, I think, you know, which am I reconciling today? Am I reconciling my gender or am I reconciling my race? In Kanye's case, it makes it very easy because his art no longer speaks to the politics of being black per se. Right. Um, But also some of the things that he's doing and saying have an impact on women, particularly black women. Hmm. And so I'm just like, he doesn't really, there's nothing that he represents that helps me move in the world or move through the world a little bit easier. So I'm like, Kanye, he can do his thing. He can make his money. He's making a lot of money. You know, I'm still out in these streets renting. (laughs) So best wishes to him. But I think it's okay to celebrate his art and what it represented and what it speaks to at a certain moment. When I was prepping to come to speak to you, I went back and listened to um, the first three albums and it took me back Mm -hmm. in a way that felt innocent and carefree and wonderful. And I will continue to hold on to that version of Kanye and, and what his music gave to me at that particular point in my life. But I'm also at a point in my life where I can see a lot of the things that he's doing now that are quite destructive and I don't want anything to do with it. Mm. Um, And Kanye, you get the sense that because we've allowed him to sort of stay in this space that we want him to still stay like this big kid that can experiment and do all these things because there's a promise of genius. I don't know if the promise is enough anymore. I don't know if the promise is enough, especially given the consequences of some of those actions. Santi, I literally could talk about this for like six weeks nonstop, but um, that's a really awesome place to leave it. Thank you so much for being so, yeah, generous with your thoughts on this. Pleasure, man. And like I said, you're the only person that made me listen to Donda. After the break, I'll be joined by Shard D'Souza to unpack Donda. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy. Yeah, this. yeah <laughs> if, that's, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Shard D'Souza, music critic for The Saturday Paper. Welcome to The Conversation. Uh, Guess who's going to jail tonight? (laughs) Could be both of us. Yeah, it could be both of us. Before we get into the finer details of what we like and don't like, it's hard to talk about this album separate from the rollout. The rollout is, I think, from where I sit, as much a part of the artistic project as the music that was eventually released onto streaming platforms. The stadium shows, changing up 
the the music between the releases, locking himself in a in a in a change room in one of the stadiums as he was remixing and recording stuff. What do you make of all of that? You, you into it? You think it's interesting, or did you think it was self indulgent and you know weird? Yeah. So I watched all three of the live streams as they happened. I sat as the Apple Music screen failed to um, show anything for many hours. I honestly, I'm a real sucker for spectacle. I loved the Pablo live stream. Like live shows are really cool, but I think there's something really exciting about privileging your art hmm. so much that you want to you want to show it in this huge way to so many people like me and my friend went to that like 7am screening of the Pablo live stream when that hmm. happened like I love this shit I think maybe the third live stream will be kind of like the enduring iconography from this era the one with the house and yeah it was it was on this crazy like synecdoche new york thing like where he was literally just like recreating images from his own life and like i felt so at the time marilyn manson visited him in his childhood home (laughs) (laughs) yes yes we'll get to that because (laughs) we both have opinions on that but yeah i just i found it very like i find a lot of culture especially kind of like big budget culture very rote And the sheer kind of, like, how destabilizing it was to see Kim Mm. in that wedding dress Mm. walking up to Kanye after Kanye set himself on fire, I it was surreal. And it it was, like, the other two live streams I I really loved. I liked the music more at those live streams. But that third one just, it, it left me really shaken. And, like, it feels really, really dark. And that's that's cool. Like, there's not much mass culture that feels as kind of, like, unpredictable and transgressive as that. Yeah, it felt like a culmination of what he has been trying to do for a while, which is make a statement that he's not just a musical artist. He's an artist in every sense of the word. Santi, who, uh, you know, I just spoke to about this, described him as a performance artist now and thinking about the rollout, and it's not just doing a stadium show with the spectacle that, in the way that you described it, but just all the things that happened in between. The fact that he seemed to be living at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta <laughs> yeah. and was just popping up at random sports events that happened there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the album was delayed. We kept getting these shows. It eventually sort of just dropped, you know, without a sort of sense it was going to happen at this time. First reactions to the album. It's long. It's nearly two hours long. It was one of the most remarked upon or most common criticisms of this album amongst just regular people I spoke to, but also in uh, critical reviews, people saying that this album was too long, there was too much filler, it didn't hold up cohesively, there were tracks that felt unfinished. And Yeah, um, if I remember correctly, when we were texting, you said, quote-unquote, no one says this shit about the Beatles. <laughs> um no one does. So <laughs> but I'm not sure the Beatles have a record this long. The Beatles have so many songs, right? Are you going to tell me that the Beatles don't have filler across their discography? <laughs> That's a different conversation. It's a different conversation to what we're talking about right now. But I think the, the they weren't re- doing anything to play streaming. You know, <laughs> the the reason why I I think I reacted so negatively against that criticism. It's not even me saying that this album is. This is not a perfect album by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not me saying that this album is. You know, I think there is a version of this album that is maybe 11 or 12 tracks long and it is tight and the songs Mm. on it are really good songs and they are thematically focused and it's powerful. And when you get to the end, you're like, wow, okay, that 
actually left an emotional impact upon me. Let's do that again. I agree. But at the same time, even if even if that's maybe a version of this, the way that people, it's like, no one is, it's not like, oh, it's too long. You're not putting, it's not the 70s. You're not putting a record on and being like, oh, no, now I've got to go through like 25 minutes of boring stuff before I get to the next thing. An artist who is widely considered to be one of the greatest producers ever, regardless of what you think about every track, regardless of what you think about the stuff around him, has just made a lot of music. You can take it all. You can take some of it. You can make a playlist with your favourite 10 songs. You can listen to your favourite songs 10 times more than you listen to your least favourite songs. It's all there for you to engage with or not however you want. Okay, I, on a kind of, like, technical, emotional, like, people should do whatever they want level, (laughs) I agree with you. I think Kanye has trained an audience, and especially an audience of people who maybe don't listen to rap records, Hmm. to listen to his albums. Hmm. Um, As albums. Yes, and I think by holding live stream events, he's telling you that this is the album. Even, like, not listing the features on Spotify and Apple Music, stuff like that, he's signaling that this is the record. I think Drake is the complete opposite. And his albums are so long because they're playlists. And you know He called he called um More, more Life, Life was a playlist. A playlist. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, if you want singing Drake, there's you put those songs on your on your running playlist. And if you want rapping Drake, you take those songs. If you want sad Drake, blah blah blah. Mm. And so while I think it holds for like other artists, I think it even holds for like the two latest Taylor Swift albums, for example. Mm. I think Kanye is signaling that you have to listen to it as a as an album, which creates this kind of conflict because it's like I also believe it's like a sublime ten to twelve track album. Mm. And then it creates this conundrum for me, which is like I don't want to get into it now, but it's interesting to wonder when we talked about the Billy record, I was like, this is a great record if you remove these six tracks. And it's like, can you evaluate an album on that strength? It's like, can we use the medium to make, quote unquote, better records Mm. on a kind of like intellectual and emotional level? Like, I don't know. I do it personally, but I don't know. Yeah, maybe it feels like there's almost two distinct conversations that we can have in parallel about this record, which is one, how it stands on its own two feet. I actually think it's a very fair point. Like, I think Kanye does require you to judge him on a holistic output. And that's valid. But then separate from that, I think it's also worth having an interesting conversation about what does Kanye's music right now sound like? How good is it compared to everything else out there? How mm. good is it compared to his other stuff? When you finally got over how long the album was, what did you make of it? I think the feel of the album, it feels really close to Pablo to mm. me um, in terms of it's like pretty synth heavy, but it's also kind of like gospel heavy. Devil's talking to me. Angels talking to me. Angels start to tell me it's okay to not feel okay. It's dark in places, especially that first half. But in my favorite bits, it's also very warm and very bright and really fun hmm. and exciting. And I cannot sell my soul. And I cannot sell my soul. But the the thing that kind of struck me was that more than anything, this feels like a a real reorientation to me. Mm. I wouldn't call it like a bid to maintain relevance, 
but it's like the Gen Z Kanye album. And like by by that I mean like there are lots of these really young rappers or like rappers really beloved by kind of mm. young people who are really formally quite different mm. to kind of like the rappers maybe Kanye usually works with. Um they've kind of like pioneered new genres or new sounds. So like Playboy Cardi and Young Thug are on a couple of tracks and like a lot of Kanye's rapping on the record is really based in kind of like ad-libs and like squeaky or like weird flows which feels so indebted to Playboy Cardi. <laughs> And then you have like Roddy Ridge who obviously had this huge hit with The Box a few years ago and is kind of like primed to become part of like a next generation of big rappers. Like Don Tolliver and Travis Scott, like obviously Travis is a long-time Kanye protege mm. but like really speaks to mm. A younger generation, um, Baby Keem, who's from California, Kendrick Lamar's cousin, really hot right now. Lil Durk, the Griselda Records crew, like obviously they're quite old and quite old school, but like they're kind of coming to prominence now. It all just like together scans to me as Kanye being like, okay, I have like been outside the zeitgeist for a while mm. and that's not a place he's used to being mm. and i think this was his concerted effort to reinsert himself into this narrative if mm. you will he is usually known as someone who gives unknowns kind of a platform like 070 shake on yay like obviously he kind of like launched her career um and like there's so many other times where he's brought kind of like unknown producers or like people from non-rap backgrounds into rap music but this is not that. Like, this is him being like, okay, who's hot right now? I'm going to get them on the record and, like, assert my dominance. Yeah. there's. I mean, there's one feature that you haven't mentioned that is the opposite of all of those, which is the rapper that Kanye has looked up to his entire career. And when this rapper, I don't know why I'm teasing, it's Jay-Z we're talking about, <laughs> when, when it emerged at the first live stream, that Jay was on this record. That was a huge moment yeah, because <laughs> people had been, there'd been whispers and rumours of the two collaborating together. We knew that they were, they had gone through uh, pretty bitter disagreements on on things to do with commercial arrangements, musical things, as well as political things. And you hear Jay on this verse on the first proper track, Jail. I mean, I got goosebumps hearing his voice. Hola. I'm with your baby when I touch back roll. But it's not just Jay-Z saying, hey, cool, I'll rap some bars for you. He is talking about their relationship between the two of them. This might be the return of the throne. Throne. Hover and Jesus, like Moses and Jesus. You're not in control of And that is a moment for me. If every other track on this album was absolute garbage, and I don't think that's true, the whole thing's almost worth it just to have the two of them together again. And I say that as someone who doesn't even necessarily like... I don't even know what the point of that song, Jail, is. Guess who's going to jail tonight? Guess who's going to jail tonight? He's sort of got a thematic thing throughout this album about prison and the prison system. But sometimes I think, is he talking about himself being cancelled? Yeah, and- I mean, it's really incoherent. Like, we'll get to that when we address, like, the elephant in the room. It's interesting, like, I got chills as well in the first live stream 
where you hear, like, Jay, come on. And Jail was right at the end mm. at that point, mm. and I liked it better. I liked that placement better because you were building to this truly just, like... An amazing reveal. Wild. Yeah, yeah I think it was something like 3,000 days or something since they'd been on a song together. But the truth of it is that it's a bad and clearly rushed Jay-Z verse. Well, apparently he recorded it maybe the afternoon before that live stream. hours <laughs> before the live stream. And, like, it's so... I mean, you even compare it to his verse on the Drake album, and that one is, like, 10,000 times better, yep. even though it's still shitty compared to, like, peak Jay-Z. Yeah. I don't know. And, I mean, it is interesting, Kanye, kind of, like, reconnecting with these old iconic figures of his life. Like, there's Jay, there's also Jay Electronica... And the locks, obviously, like it's mm. the first time Kanye and Jadakus have collaborated in like I think ten years as well. I think it's like exciting that all these people are on the record. And then I listen to the album and I'm like, I don't really care about any of it. Like mm. it, it feels like for the like for the first time on a Kanye record, doesn't just feel like he's phoning it in, it feels like everyone's phoning it in. To me, far and away, the weakest part of this album is Kanye's lyricism. Yes. I think, you know, so many of his verses and hooks sound like, I don't know if you've ever seen rappers when they're starting a song for the first time, where they just sort of like hum melodies or just like rap gibberish words just to get a sense of the flow or the rhythm. And then eventually they're like write rhymes or they adapt yeah. rhymes. This feels like Kanye just stopped after he's like, it was all so simple. Cool, yeah. and there's nothing else. That's the one, the one where he's like, like, yeah, where he literally does that. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, he couldn't even, like, replace the filler bars with mm. actual bars. Mm. And, like, there's times where the rhyme schemes are so just, like, you know, he couldn't even be bothered. It's just like, a, 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 a. Yeah, that's – he's the weakest link for sure because all the other people, you hear them once – and if it's, like, a dud verse or even just, like, a phoned-in verse, there's still the thrill of, totally, like... Totally, totally. Oh, like, Jay Electronic is on this yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, Shensi is on this record or whatever. Yeah. There's there's a couple... For me, Believe What I Say is one that is just him. There's no features on it. It sounds like he's having fun, which it doesn't sound like he's doing for a lot of the album. Don't let, don't let the lifestyle drag you down. Who knows when was the last time you felt the and there's that sense of kind of joy and the the kind of funk samples there. It's just like a hint of like what he can be really good at. Yeah. But you're right. Even the guest features, which are my favourite part of this. Like if I think about why would I bother listening to this album again? Why have I got a list of 10 tracks that I will put into a playlist and listen to again and again? It's because I think his production is pretty good. It's pretty varied. It's interesting. I don't think it's revolutionary in the way that it was with 808s or Yeezus or... Even Jesus is King, which, you know, broke the mould a bit by blending gospel and choir and and, and 808s in the way that it did. But it's solid and it's reliable and it's mixed up. And some of the guests, there's the cohort of people who are like younger, who haven't vibed with Kanye's last three records that might come to it through these guest spots, these features. But I think similarly, there's people Kanye's age, 45 or older, who have been listening to his music for nearly 20 years now who might be like, oh, wow, there's like a whole generation of young rappers I don't know much about. This is fun. And then the whole ecosystem kind of wins. Yeah, totally. If that is, the spectacle doesn't outshine the content, which I think 
we will see whether that happens. But it's always hard to separate a Kanye album from the hype and from the noise of like yeah. people saying conflicting things. It's. I think you're right, and I think the test, the, the way to test that will be what on this album, aside from like you said, the spectacle, aside from the fact that it's it's guest heavy, it, the rollout was you know such a interesting piece of performance art in and of itself. What about the album holds together that might cut through? And I think that you know the disillusion of him and Kim's relationship appears on this album. We've seen the start of their relationship. Uh, be tracked through music before. Whether or not that is enough to keep us listening in five years' time, I'm not convinced. The only other really tangible kind of through line was this stuff about the prison system and and mass incarceration, the kind of vocal uh, from someone whose father has been in prison. What up, yay? This is Larry Hoof Jr. First and foremost, I want to thank you for taking a fight for my father to the whole office. You might not have been the only one that could have did that, but you were the one that did do that. And with your assistance, we can continue to let the world take part in this fight. Towards the end of the album, we hear Kanye say almost a defense of his relationship with Trump, where he has a line that's something like, you know, all those people that I freed by going to the White House. And for all the guys that went to the White House and said free the old man. Every day I put my life on the line to feed the whole clan. And it's kind of him trying to say, I think retroactively defend his position by saying, oh, no, no, my thing with Trump was just because I was trying to get black people freed from the prison system. That pops up again and again on the album. But again, I don't know, in a few years' time or even in six months' time, are are you going to sit down and be like, all right, let's like listen to Kanye's analysis of these issues. I'm not convinced that I want to do that. Yeah, I just, when it, whenever he kind of, like, delves into, like, an issue or something, it feels really, really topical and, like, only skin deep and, like, yeah, he's, he's like, beyond, like, single life ain't so bad, like, we got nothing about <laughs> his relationship with Kim. There's some stuff about the prison system, but, you know, not necessarily anything he hasn't touched on before. All the stuff with kind of his mom, like, you know, obviously Donda has her track um, and, you know, her name is at the start. Yeah, but other than that, it doesn't feel particularly in service of or indebted to Donda. Like, Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of, like, because there's such little Kanye on it. And, like, he's so, you know, when he is there, he's doing little ad-libs or, like, half-finished raps and it's broken up by all these other people who recorded their verses hours before deadline. And so it's like a real task to actually find a through line. And, you know, like, say what you will about his past records, like even Jesus is King, it's never been hard to find that through line. Even on Ye, mm. you get this kind of like very intense breakdown. You know, it's like mm. about mental health and it's about like his kids and so much more lucidly than here. Yeah. yeah, and even when he does talk about those quote-unquote like issues, right, when he's trying to say, no, I'm talking about stuff still. I'm not just talking about my life. I'm talking about issues that matter, like the prison system. It's just not as good as anything he's ever done before. I think on um, Twisted Fantasy, Gorgeous, there's one line. Face it, Jerome, get more time than Brandon. And at the airport, they check all through my bag and tell me that it's random. Face it, Jerome, get more time than Brandon. That is a line that is both 
so sharp and cutting in terms of making a point in, in that whole song about the racial inequality at the heart of America's justice system. And so much of his music that has been good, and I think ultimately why a lot of people really love and respected Kanye's music and why there is so much expectation on these records is because it felt like he sat with his lines and his music a lot and thought really deeply about metaphor and humour and what he was trying to say. And it seems like almost the opposite's happening now. He doesn't really care. And yeah, as you say, it felt like he had this really distinct ideological bent that he really wanted Mm. to share. Mm. Like his music is if not didactic, then at least, like, Kanye has always had a message and he's always been on message. And, like, I don't know what to attribute it to, but, like, he's never been less focused on music than at this point in time. And, like, he's never had more to gain from the extraneous stuff, from Mm. the live streams and from Yeezy Gap and from Yeezy and that kind of thing, and less to gain from music. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Winnie Dunn has made a career out of helping others find their literary voice, and now it's her turn in the spotlight. This week on Read This, join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Winnie about her debut. Find it wherever you listen. I think we're at the point where we do have to address the elephant in the room. And I would love to. The way that the way that I want to approach this one is when this album dropped, my feeds on social were split in a way that I have not seen before with, with an artist. I saw a lot of people post screenshots of them listening to the album and saying what they thought about it, uh, saying that they enjoyed it, saying that they were just glad that it was finally out. And I saw an enormous amount of people posting saying, I can't believe people are actually listening to this Kanye record and giving him money after what he's done. And that being a reference to, I mean, Kanye has done a number of controversial things in in his career. And and most recently, his comments about slavery being a choice, his uh, support of Donald Trump. But I think what people were really reacting to specifically this time around was the choice to work with some particular artists. And I think in particular, Marilyn Manson, who has had numerous allegations of sexual misconduct made against him, and the baby, who uh, I think earlier this year made some pretty outrageously homophobic remarks. I mean, my original thing on that was I found it a bit frustrating that we were collapsing those things together. Like Kanye performs with cancelled men is a good headline, but also I think really unfairly to the victims of Manson conflates things that are not should not really be conflated. Okay, so I, I agree with um those two sides of, of your social media, I like agree with both. I'm like, it's fair enough if you don't want to listen to this record. It's also fair enough if you do. I think it's frustrating and I think it's irresponsible to conflate what DeBaby did and what Marilyn Manson did. And that's on Kanye hmm. because it's clearly what he's doing. Um, but also I think it's important that when we talk about it, we met, we kind of like talk about the difference between... You know, DeBaby said vile, homophobic things. Marilyn Manson, if anyone listening doesn't know, I would encourage you to kind of look at what Evan Rachel Wood has said about their marriage because it is horrific, it is vile, it is truly kind of like stomach-churning abuse allegations. So the on the first level, I think it's irresponsible and I think it's horrifying for Kanye to 
conflate them as cancelled men. Yeah, look at me. I'm putting these cancelled men together and taking a stand against cancel culture. Essentially, seems to be what he was doing. Yeah, and like they they both feature on the song Jail and, you know, obviously maybe Guess Who's Going to Jail Tonight can be about getting cancelled again, which is stupid because DeBaby has not been cancelled. And I I don't think DeBaby should be cancelled except for maybe the fact that like everything he does (laughs) like is the same and bad. <laughs> like, 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 I I think what you said was bad. I think if you're going to cancel the baby for being homophobic, you should probably cancel the entire pop music and rap music industries for being homophobic. But that's a different conversation. But, yeah, what Marilyn Manson did is awful. Like, yeah, that's the frustrating element of it to me. Like, the, the, this whole cycle has this flattening effect on two levels. On the first level, it's you're saying, okay... Baby and Manson are at the same level, which they're not. And then on the second level, you're saying, okay, you can't listen to this album because they're on the record. And I think that is more of a personal choice. I don't listen to Jail Part 2 because I think it's worse and because I think it's gross. Hmm. But I, like, have listened to it. I don't think anyone... I, I think it's... Maybe just myopic is all. And I think there needs to be a different option than don't listen to it. It's reprehensible for you to listen to it because whether you like it or not, this record is going to be consumed by millions of people and especially millions of really young people. Mm. And it is like one of the most wide reaching and will be kind of like influential, if not in sound and style, then in terms of discourse. Mm now and for, you know, months and years to come. And so I think to say, oh, you just can't listen to it, is ignoring the fact of the millions of people who will listen to it. To peel the curtain back a bit for our listeners, like we did have a conversation about whether we wanted to talk about this album at all. And I think that was us trying to just kind of talk through the concerns that people had about why you would want to listen to this record, why you'd want to talk about this record. I think ultimately what we landed on is what you've just basically articulated is this album is a cultural artefact. It is big. It's going to go to number one. Uh, It will be consumed by so many people. None of that, acknowledging that doesn't mean you're excusing the reprehensible bits. And we need to have a conversation about what how we consume work, how we push back against the things that we don't like, what the boundaries and guardrails are around here. I just think that pretending like it's easy is not true. I mean, as soon as I saw Manson on those steps at the live stream, I kind of like had a bad feeling about the overall record that hasn't Mm. really gone away. Mm. Mm. And I think people who are already cognizant of what he's done will probably feel the same way. Hmm. And so I'm sure that will always colour how I listen to this record. And so the question is more like what happens to all the people who are not cognizant of what he's done. I think he sees himself as a cancelled man and he sees Manson as a cancelled man and he sees baby as a cancelled hmm. man. And I think he's like, well, none of us deserve to be cancelled. Hmm. When obviously what he did and what DeBaby did and what Manson did are actually three entirely different things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess the the final thing, I mean, it's definitely not the final thing, but the the last question around Donder is, 
you know, how well is this album going to do? We've seen in the last couple of days this uh, feud reignite between Drake and Kanye. I don't really think we have the time or the energy to go into the start of it. It's very (laughs) strange. It has to do with Drake's child and suggestions that Kanye leaked information to Pusha T about Drake having a secret kid. I'm not even sure this feud is about that. (laughs) I think this, no, I'm actually, I'm pretty sure this feud stems from something different and more petty. I can't even remember what. Like, I don't think we should talk about it. Sure, sure. So uh, there's a petty feud, reignites uh, in the lead-up to this album. Uh, Kanye kicks kicks off. um, Basically, Kanye is trying to provoke Drake. They they go back and forth. A couple of days after Kanye releases Donda, Drake releases uh, his new album, Certified Loverboy. It all feels a little bit too neat. Like, we've seen this before. In 2007, Kanye and 50 Cent had this beef where he was dropping Graduation, 50 was releasing Curtis, and it was like this competition to see who was going to come out on top. Now, that's fun. We love to write stories yeah, about it. 50 Fans... said he would retire. Yeah, yeah, Kanye yeah. <laughs> Ten albums later, how did that go? <laughs> yeah. um, how do you feel about these two albums coming out around the same time, there being a lot of meaty discussion about both of them? Yeah, well, I do believe that in terms of personal pride, Drake announcing that his album was going to come out a week later, a week after Donda was supposed to come out, forced Kanye's hand. And I think that's why we got Donda unceremoniously on a Sunday night instead of a Friday morning as we were supposed to get. But I don't believe in the beef in terms of like, I think they probably hate each other, but like, (laughs) you know, Kanye's on Def Jam, Drake is on Republic. They're two of the biggest labels in the world, and they're both owned by Universal, which is one of the biggest corporations in the world. Like, it's all money in Lucian Granger's pocket. And, like, I don't even believe they're in conversation or in competition artistically because Drake will never be able to do uh, what Kanye does, and Kanye will never be able to do what Drake does. And I love them both for that, and I think they're both so good at you know drake is so good at making amazing hits and being a crowd pleaser and kanye is so good at making crazy intense things that are kind of like annoying and weird and hard to listen to <laughs> and yet um we still do shard decisa thank you so much for this episode of the thank Culture. you are we going to jail tonight the culture is a weekly show from schwartz media it's produced by bezoda and atticus basto our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week. Listener.